Welcome to Planet Geo, the podcast where we talk about our amazing planet, how it works, and why it matters to you. Dr. Jesse Remick, how are we doing today? <laughs> Hi, Christopher. How are we doing? Why, why are you laughing? What, I don't know, man. I've meant that in the most sincere way. Yeah, I know. I know. You're anything if not sincere, maybe 20% of the time. <laughs> 20% of the time, it works every time that you're sincere. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I like that stat, actually. Oh, goodness. <laughs> hey, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot. It's been a really gloomy day, so oh, I'm man. glad we're recording because I know it has been. It's like it's the same thing gray. here. Oh, woke up and it's just low hanging clouds. My office in our building, in our uh, in the geology building, is on the fourth floor, and you know I look out and I have a like a somewhat of a decent view. Like I kind of get a little angle of the mountains in Pennsylvania here, but man, I couldn't even see the the ridges in the distance and they're not that far away. Just low hanging clouds. I couldn't see the buildings downtown. It was just gloomy and spitting rain. Ah, brutal. Yeah. Plus you're, you're setting behind you. You look like you're in a hospital room. Honestly, you have nothing. You need to do better with this. This is, it depresses me looking at where you're sitting right now. You're sitting in a bedroom with, what's wrong know, with my recording nothing. studio? Okay. Is, just because I don't have Come on. a, you know, wood paneled recording studio <laughs> in my basement, you know, you, you need like whiskey and cigar bar behind you there, Chris, to really I, oh, fill I, in the picture. Actually, yeah, actually, I do. First of all, it's not wood paneled; it's tongue and groove knotty pine. So okay. don't yes, don't me. downgrade me, please. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. All right. Oh goodness. <laughs> well, we should probably get started here with some geology. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. So, what are we talking about today, Jesse? This is an episode that's near and dear to my heart, and you're going to have to work really hard to keep me out of the weeds. So you're going <laughs> to be tugging you. on. Give me tugging. You got the shot collar <laughs> button, you know, and to, to buzz me back to reality here a little bit. Um, we're talking about neodymium and this is a word that people struggle to pronounce, but the way to pronounce it is just <laughs> like it reads neodymium is the way to pronounce yes. it. Yes. Correct. Well, Jesse, give us the overarch. Why is this important? First of all, like, you know, why? Well, you had to pitch me on this. I'm like, okay, let's do it. Why? Yeah. Why? It's the great question. And the question we try and center ourselves around, right? Chris is why? Um, <laughs> Neodymium is a really important element, uh, and it's an element, it's what's called a rare earth element, and it falls into this category of minerals that's really important called critical minerals, which we consider really important for society. Um, and, and, oh, uh, hold on. Let me interject real quick. Bring this back to Nadal Nassar, our interview with oh, yeah. rare earth elements and the head of the USGS department that surrounds this idea, right? Like yeah. go back to that interview. It is that I think is a must before you listen to this. Don't you think? Like, yeah, I agree. That interview, Nadal, uh, just has, uh, just an unbelievable insight. And one of the coolest jobs, he's an industrial ecologist is what he called himself. Yes. I mean, totally <laughs> cool. You can do whatever you want when you call yourself that. Cause who knows what that word means? Like, it's so interesting though. So yeah, absolutely. Go back and listen to that. So, so neodymium is important for our society. It is what makes strong magnets, and we use strong magnets all the time in every electric motor that is produced currently uses strong magnets. So th that's the the sort of societal relevance of it. But also neodymium is near and dear to my heart for research purposes. So we'll kind of end, oh. I think, this episode with that. Okay, I want to get into that. Um, let's. I'm just going to give a rundown then today of what we're going to do. Perfect. We are going to start with the overview of the neodymium market. And we're going to do this in two different contexts, okay? Why it's important for society, 
and why it is important for geoscience research, which you just touched upon. Then we're going to end by talking about the geology, because this is a geo podcast, the geology (laughs) of neodymium. And by the way, neodymium is capital N D on the periodic table. That's right. For reference. That's right. And that's about it. Let's, let's just dive right in the uses of neodymium in society. And it really, it just boils down to the title of this episode, making magnets and neodymium. Chris, I must admit, I don't really understand magnets. I don't know how they make magnets. I don't really kind of get how they work at a really deep physical level. But what I do know, but they're fun. (laughs) They're so fun and they're so cool. But the other, the other thing I do know is that neodymium iron boron also spelled the, if you uh, link together the elemental names, N D F E B magnets are the strongest magnets. We really know how to make efficiently as a society. So these are the strongest commercially available magnets, at least. And we use magnets all the time in electric motors. Yeah, right. We use them in hybrid electric motors. I drive a Toyota Prius. It's in that. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and Tesla uses this too, right? I mean, this is one of the things that makes the Tesla go so fast. So I have a question though, as I read what you wrote here for us, has the technology evolved in the modern years and recent years with this, like what have we done to advance magnets to make these motors so much more efficient? Do you know? I don't think it's really in the magnet side. To my understanding, these neodymium iron boron magnets have been around for a while, a couple decades at least. And really the, the efficiency driver that makes electrical vehicles um, more efficient is actually the battery storage. So it's storing the power. And we can think, I think it's most useful, Chris, to think about this in reverse. So think about wind turbines. Wind turbines use these types of magnets as well. So the way that electricity is generated is by spinning magnets inside of a coil of electrical wire, of copper wire, and that drives electrical current through the wire. So that's what's going on inside of a wind turbine is the magnets are spinning with the propeller blades. The propeller blades are spinning the magnets inside and it's generating electricity. The opposite happens with a motor. You drive current through the wire and then you have a magnet sitting inside of that and it spins around. The magnet starts to spin inside of this circle of wire, basically. I mean, that's a really dumbed down version of it, but I think that helps visualize how magnets are used in all kinds of electric motors. So do they help it spin faster then? Is that what we're talking about? Efficiency of this rotation? Yeah, strong, the electromagnetic strong field. Strong magnets would presumably like respond, you know, more to the same amount of electrical current and have more torque and provide more torque to the system. But I have to say that when I was, you know, a student, a young student in college, right? We have to go way back, right? Neodymium was not like this wasn't something that was talked about, right? This is relatively new. Do do you know why that is? Yeah, I think the reason that that is, is because, you know, in the stone age, when you were in college, um, the, <laughs> the, you know, we were, there were no motors you around. Took me off no, of that. That's good. No. Um, right. I got you. But in, in seriously, in all seriousness, the, the things have changed, you know, uh, internal combustion engines were what were driving torque in all the vehicles, right? In most of the motors in your yard, right? You start up your lawnmower and you're using gasoline start up your chainsaw using gasoline. Now you can buy the electric ones and those batteries, the batteries power this electric motor. And so we, we have an electric motor sitting inside of there. So we're just using, we're just making more electric motors. So we need more neodymium. 
Okay. But I thought that, so when I buy this, right, because I'm doing this, I'm converting <laughs> almost everything over to battery, right? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I have a uh, battery operated snowblower right now. Oh, and right. I, you okay. know, my driveway. Okay. Yeah, my, my driveway is super long. So yeah, I'm not <laughs> yeah. doing that with that. I, I get it plowed, but I'm getting too old to do, you know, all the shoveling and I, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm past that stage of my life. So I bought a battery powered snowblower, but it says lithium on it. So what's the backstory there? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. This is the great point, Chris. Go back to lithium. Go back to our episode on lithium, the geology of lithium. We talk about that and, and that's making batteries. That lithium is where the charge is stored. The lithium ion batteries are where we're storing electrical charge. And then the neodymium magnets, these neodymium iron boron magnets, which were invented again, sort of in the eighties. So, you know, to answer your question, they might not have been really the most common magnet type in electrical motors when you were in high school and going through the system, but now they are. Now they're the most powerful magnet and you have neodymium iron boron magnets probably sitting in your snowblower uh, and then sitting in the you know leaf blower that I have that's electric. And it's again, lithium ion battery. So the lithium storing the charge, the neodymium is providing the motion as that, that charge goes Jesse, around. Jesse, I'm going to give you credit for this. Like, Really, really well done. I didn't know where you were going to go when I asked the question, <laughs> but you really gave a good explanation. Seriously, I'm, I'm being 100% serious. This is me giving you credit right now. Well, thank you. I appreciate so, it. Yeah, yeah. I'll take it where I can get it. <laughs> the lithium provides the power, but the motor is driven by the neodymium. That's exactly right. Okay. That, good, 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 good. Yeah, I actually am in the process of converting all of my tools and a lot of things that I never even thought about two years ago, even Jesse, yeah, to battery powered stuff with different motors, my drills, my reciprocating saw, my chainsaw, my snowblower. My son has a lawnmower that is battery powered. It's and and therefore neodymium motor, right? And it's crazy. They're everywhere. How good this stuff is, but it's so <laughs> awesome. Like the freedom of it. Oh shoot, I just forgot one. A leaf blower. Yeah. You know, we just got done with this in the fall, and and it's it is just as powerful. My forty amp leaf blower is just as powerful as my gas powered one that I just sold on Facebook marketplace. Like stuff is crazy, but Jenny, all she's got to do, my wife, she couldn't like, she had a hard time always starting the thing. You didn't got to choke it. You got to take the choke off and all this stuff. Right. And then you got to deal with bad gas and a carburetor. She's like, I just want to push a button. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Totally. Okay. Totally. So there we go. We can do this. Yeah. It's so amazing. let me ask you this. Chris. Is do really you, have you yeah. gone sort of one brand where you have the interchangeable batteries mm. that you can use between them all okay. or? Yes. So this is a really interesting question. Um, I, we don't advertise yet on this show, but <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> so we don't, um, but Chris is going to right now. So <laughs> no, I'm really, I, I don't know. Like for certain things, I really like Milwaukee because you know, the, the batteries are, they're just, they're so good. They're expensive. Okay. But I really, really like the cobalt brand from Lowe's. It's much more affordable and I just, I think it's really, really good. And the thing is, is that it's, if you get into like buying batteries, the batteries are mo almost as expensive as the device itself. And what I have found is with the Lowe's cobalt brand is that they sell the tool and the battery in certain packages together. 
So once you get into it, you, like you kind of get roped in, you have to go with a certain brand because then, you know, once I have a 40 volt battery, I can use that interchangeably with right. all of my tools that uses that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got one charger and you got a bunch of different batteries that are interchangeable for sure. I mean, it's a smart strategy. Um, I think I have a, I think it's an ego. I think is it Ergo? Mm. It's a green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Green is one. it a lawnmower? Yeah, I got a leaf blower. So I got a leaf blower with oh, yeah. that. And then yeah. um, I actually just got for Christmas a um, uh, electric chainsaw. And I'm blanking on what the brand is. I'm going to have to try that out. Because it's a little like, I don't know, is a chainsaw going to have the, you know, really the torque to, to do a lot. But they, well, I'll give it a they try. They actually do. Do they? Okay. Uh, they cool. actually do. Yeah. I could not believe the power of this battery operated snowblower. I mean, uh, so what ter- What got me thinking about this is one of my friends, a professor, one of my college professors at Grand Valley, has a battery-operated rototiller. And I'm thinking, all right, <laughs> yeah, what in the that's hell? Serious. Yeah, that's serious torque, right? And to do that, he can use it for 30 minutes on one battery. And that's like, that's pretty amazing. Oh, you know? totally. It's just like, this is impressive. So let's, let's kind of bring it back, Chris, that, that leads us nicely okay. back into the, into the neodymium. But this is why you need a strong magnet, right? Is to provide that torque. You need a lot of current going through with a strong magnet. So that interaction between the electrical current spinning around and the magnet that wants to turn in there, you need to have a strong magnet. So it gives more torque to the system. And so that's why neodymium is really, really valuable at this current time. And I just want to list a couple stats here. Jesse, can I interject a second? Absolutely. Um, recently, well, I don't know, maybe recently, last couple of years, Buckyballs made their presence in the movie. Oh, the, yes. Okay. <laughs> because uh, some kid swallowed 28, 28 Buckyballs. And so I think, well, first of all, so a Buckyball is a really powerful magnet. I don't, Jesse, do you know why they call them Buckyballs? Like, what did that No, mean? I have no uh, idea, actually. All, like, I, it might be some structural thing, but these are these little <laughs> tiny, like, magnet <laughs> balls that you can put together in a grid. They're super strong. You put them on, like, other sides of the table and they'll attract together and smash together. They're super, super strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. That was a random thought, but they, you know, I think they ended up banning Buckyballs because kids kept swallowing them. Yeah, you know, and they're, and they're just, so these are really strong, oh you know, neodymium magnets, right? I mean, yeah, it's, and uh, neodymium so. magnets are found in MRI machines. Actually, the United States F-35 fighter apparently contains 427 kilograms, Chris, kilograms of rare earth <laughs> elements of which neodymium will be the biggest one, probably the most of the well, rare earth elements. Yeah. For our American listeners, uh, a kilogram is approximately 2.2 pounds. Just <laughs> so yeah. puts it in perspective. Like, it's a lot. That's amazing. A lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, so, <laughs> wow. I mean, so, th- and I just think to highlight this, you know, like the fact that wind turbines have these, water turbines have these magnets. Like, a lot of the green economy is based on these super strong magnets, either extracting energy, extracting electricity from like wind and stuff like that, or converting that electricity into power like we talked about in all of our appliances chris so which is really, really, really changing important. our lives though it has changed oh my, my life i'm yeah. like i have i've sold more of my old tools on facebook marketplace in the last two years than i ever would have imagined seriously i'm i'm trying to go totally to this direction because the convenience of it is absolutely life-changing it's amazing for sure 
And then if you have green power coming into your grid, you know, it, it's better as well to just use that green power and <laughs> dump the uh, electricity into your little Milwaukee battery <laughs> and then go around blowing the snow <laughs> off your driveway. It's great. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my son's dreams. Um, he put solar panels on his house in Virginia and he wants to buy a Tesla then down the road. Oh, yeah, there you go. It with it's the dream. You know, totally green energy. So yeah, absolutely. Hey, one thing too, again, and this makes me think of the Nadal Nassar interview that we did last April. China currently supplies about 85% of the world's neodymium. And they do this from about one or two locations. We're talking worldwide, right? So that's a an amazing stat, first of all, I think, if you digest that. And then also it's a scary stat. Like that, that, that scares the hell out of me in terms of, you know, supply chain issues. Any I mean, time that most of the world's supply comes from one or two places in one or two countries, it's a, not a stable supply chain. And that goes back to the critical part of neodymium being a critical element or a critical mineral is that we got to worry about the supply chain. We got to like, it might not be that stable. Uh, it might not be only up to the, the, um, supply demand processes here you know there are other forces at play so i think chris that should we go into the geology of neodymium and then talk about the scientific uh uses of neodymium because i think the geology kind of sets the stage a little bit is is that okay i think that's a good plan that's a good plan i gotta say uh this is your territory okay (laughs) okay uh holy crap you are you're really nerding on me here. Um, <laughs> I know, so, <laughs> but I, but I do love this stuff. Honestly, my knowledge is uh, a little limited here. I can contribute, but you're definitely carrying this part of it for sure. So well, let's put it this let's way, Chris. Go. I've spent yeah. the last, uh, about eight years of my life studying neodymium <laughs> where it is in the earth a bit. So, <laughs> okay. That's, yeah. That, you yeah. know what? I actually, actually did not know that you just, I, did not know that until just a second. We we don't have that very often where I don't know something about you and you don't know something about me. So that's okay. true. All that's right. true. Yeah. I get you. So um, Jesse, neodymium is a rare earth element. It's like ridiculously small in the in terms of the total earth, it's about four hundred parts per billion. So that means out of a billion atoms. 400 of them out of a billion, this is ridiculously small, are going to be neodymium. And it is also a lithophile. And this this reminds me of something because back when we talked about, um, were we talking about iridium? I think we were talking about iridium, weren't we? And you said that iridium is a siderophile. And I like that term. And I asked you to call me sidero because it means iron loving and, you know, I'm, I think of myself as like iron hardened iron, you know, but you, <laughs> yes, Chris, you've not you done for, that, which is you very forged <laughs> as in steel exactly. is forged. Are I know. you? Yes. Okay. Okay. I know. I know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, can I ask the question, please? Could yeah. Yeah. Inter- sorry. Could yeah. Interrupt me. So uh, it, it is a lithophile litho, which I, I get this, which means that it likes silicates and litho is the lithosphere. So which means that it has to love the very outer part of the earth. Right. Is that right. that good? Right. Yes, okay. exactly. Go. All right. I'm unleashing you. So, so go. Was, was that a question? Well, no, it really wasn't. Um, 
Okay. All right. Can I let me? Can so, I back up? Can I, I, I got. I got. Can you. I back okay. up really quickly, Chris? I just want to back up to rare earth <laughs> element really quickly because I just want to set okay. the stage good, for good, where good. we are on the yep. periodic table. So the rare earth elements are a suite of elements that are at the bottom of the periodic table. So they're that kind of. There's two rows of the periodic table that are often like pulled out and pasted at the bottom of the periodic table, and <laughs> that's, uh, that's right. where neodymium resides. It's kind of on the left side of the top bar of those elements down at the bottom called the rare earth element. So it is one of like 13 or 14 rare earth elements there. Can I ask you a okay. question a minute? Yeah. I'm going to interrupt you. So back in the day when I was in college, those little pasted things at the bottom of the periodic table, we never paid any attention to that at all. <laughs> yeah. Not Now, like everybody does, right? Did you, when you were a beginning young student, did you pay attention to those at all? Or this, or is it newer than that? No, I would say it's, I don't know if it's newer than that. It's just not introductory level stuff like this. I, I think I, we probably should have said this at the beginning. This is going to be a deep dive into isotope geochemistry. We're going to go into like graduate <laughs> level isotope geochemistry here if I have my way. So <laughs> this is not something you will find in a basic geology course or on our, you know, camp geo platform, for instance, you're not. By the talk. way, Jesse, I did catch the, the snide remark you made there. no. This is on it's own it's not going to be an introductory <laughs> level. So you're saying that all of my chemistry no, education no. was done at an intro level. Oh, Hold wow, on, let me defend myself. More than a little bit, okay? For all of you listeners that are like, you know, minors and maybe, you know, lower majors in chemistry, <laughs> Jesse just said you don't know no. anything. No, Chris, I think if you listen carefully, I put my own <laughs> education in that category. I didn't learn this stuff about neodymium until I was well in my PhD, well on my way to my PhD. Uh, so this is not intro level stuff and I didn't get it in intro level uh, classes either. So Okay, the question I believe was something about lithophile, and then you had, and yes, but mostly about yes, yes. do I call so, you Sidero? I think was really the question. <laughs> okay, but. that's not the question. My question is actually this: Is a lithophile or is neodymium? Is this like compatible with the deeper parts of the Earth, like the liquid outer core and the inner core? Is that a thing or not? Because we said that that Sidero is. That's why it went there, right? And this is different. That's exactly right, Chris. So lithophile literally means rock lover. And rock in our world, in our planet, means silicates. Iron or metal, iron lover, siderophile. So any element that likes bonding with iron will be in the core. And you brought up iridium, uh, platinum. There's a whole bunch of different metals that love bonding with iron that'll be in the core instead of the mantle. So when the Earth initially differentiated... We had an episode on how to build a planet a while back where we talked about when the core formed. Uh, when the core formed, neodymium did not go into the core. It stayed in the mantle, in the silicate part, the litho silicate, rocky part of the planet. Okay, I get you. So actually now I want to change. I don't want to be called Sidero anymore. I want to be called litho because I am the rock lover. So can you do that? Uh, you can call me litho. Chris. There is no the human lover. on this planet so. who is more lithophile than you are. <laughs> I, you are the most lithophile. We need t-shirts. Chris um, is the I, most lithophile. <laughs> that is a really good idea, by the way. I love t-shirts. I do. And I love t-shirts that are clever. So I am going to do something with that. Let me go with this then. I have another question for you then. Okay. So it gets concentrated in the crust then is what you said, right? So far, we've gotten concentrated in the silicate part. It's not in the core. It's in the mantle yeah. and above. Yep. Right. So, okay. Like what kind of parts per million are we talking about here? We said 400 
overall, 400 parts per billion. What is it like in the crust then? It's got to yeah. be much higher because it's litho. Exactly. It's 1.5 parts per million now in Earth's mantle. So there's if you take that 400 parts per billion, that's the total Earth, but there's basically none in the core. So that means it's concentrated in the silicate part. In the mantle, it's like 1.5 parts per million. And then in the continental crust, we have the mantle. We melt the mantle to form basaltic oceanic crust. We melt the basaltic oceanic crust to form continental crust. In the continental crust, it's 27 parts per million. And that's a substantial amount more than 400 parts per billion. What 400 parts per billion is 0.4 parts per million. So 27 is a lot more than 0.4. Is this then, because we've talked about this before in previous episodes, is this just differentiation of, exactly. of magma? Exactly, Chris. Exactly. And the key here is that neodymium, when it's in the mantle, it likes being in silicates more than in metal. So it likes silicates more than iron. Uh, but once it's in silicates, it would it doesn't really love being in silicates. It would just rather be there than in iron. In fact, when silicates melt, it would rather be in the melt than in the mineral. So the neodymium goes in the melt during all these partial melting processes. Gotcha. It just doesn't have a choice. At the when it comes down to the end, it doesn't have a choice because that's the colder part of the earth, and that's where it goes. Um, I just want to, for our listeners again, uh, terminology wise, silicates. When Jesse and I refer to silicates, we're talking about minerals like quartz and feldspar, hornblende, biotite, augite. You know the pyroxenes, okay, olivines. Those are the silicates that we're talking about. So we're talking about very common minerals, in other words, right? Yes, that um, are fundamentally built on silicon and oxygen bonds. One other question then for you, okay? What happens? Because Earth goes through, has, at least in the early part of Earth history, has been melted or resurfaced. So what happens then to, like, neodymium? Because I got a guess. I mean, like, yeah, I, I mean, every time the earth melts, neodymium gets enriched in the molten part. So, you know, the mantle is partially melting to form oceanic crust, 15 to 20 percent partial melt. In that 15 to 20 percent, most of the neodymium goes in there, which means the oceanic crust has more neodymium in it. So, every time the earth melts, this neodymium gets enriched in the melt phase. So it is exactly exactly what you said, Chris. It is this distillation process. Neodymium is being distilled every time the Earth melts. Cool. All right. I get it. I, I get it. So, yep. Chris, I think it's now time to sort of bring in these weird minerals and rare earth elements. I mean, you described this really well that uh, when we talked about pegmatites, that all the elements that don't fit, the misfits, they all get together and form random minerals that are not common minerals. They're not biotite or quartz or amphibole. They're the weird ones. And there are weird minerals that are made up of rare earth elements plus some anion, some other part. And so we have rare earth element phosphates, which is a mineral called monazite. This is a rare earth element phosphate. It's fairly common. I mean, it's not that common. It occurs at like fractions of a percentage of a rock but it occurs in a bunch of different rocks we actually date this in our lab um you know gem quality monazite is not the prettiest mineral actually um you know it's, it's not that interesting it's very useful for science because it has uranium and no lead so you can date the uranium lead system but there are other rare earth element mineral groups um so for instance like what other ones might contain rare earth elements chris 
Oh, well, actually, I want to jump back to something that you said. So monazite is a phosphate. I want to define what that means. It's PO4, three negative. Minerals are put into groups according to the dominant anion that's present. Phosphates are one of those. It's PO4. Sulfates are another one. That's SO4. Silicates is another one, and that's SiO4. So it's that dominant anion that allows us to categorize the mineral groups. And there are only, you know, I'm going to say two handfuls of mineral groups that exist on, at least in the crust. Okay. So I I don't know. I just thought I would. No, that's exactly right, Chris. So monazite is a rare earth element plus three charge plus a PO4 minus three charge bonded together. That's a neutral bond. Great. That can make a mineral. So they build a mineral out of that. And that's uh, monazite. And that is actually mined in some of these places. You can have monazite sand. It's a pretty heavy mineral. It's like zircon uh, in the erosion process. It can be concentrated in certain locations. And so you can get monazite sand that can be economical to mine for neodymium or for rare earth elements. All right. So I have another question for you. Uh, Appetite a mineral that I love appetite to me looks like a green Jolly Rancher, like one of those sour apple <laughs> Jolly Ranchers. Okay, that's yeah. how I think of it. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think it works. It, it has a decent amount of rare earth elements, but not as much as monazite. I, I love appetite. Um, I have a question for you before, like you can talk a little bit about appetite, not much. And then I want to get to my next question for you, but I took appetite out of my mineral sets for my geology students. Is that a good call or should I put it back in? Ooh, good call. You would never have it in your class because you don't have time for that. No, 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 no. I mean, we cover only the basic rock forming minerals to 10. Yeah, appetite. I I would say good. I mean, it's rare people have to identify appetite Mm -hmm. even if they're working in any industry. Okay, so that's beside the point. So I think it's good to take it out, Chris, but it, you know, it, it's not really an economic deposit of rare thumbs, but it does have it in there. So appetite is, you know, basically your teeth. I mean, it's the same compound as your teeth, but natural rock forming appetite will take, it'll suck up some of the rare thumbs that don't fit in the other minerals in a rock. The most important mineral perhaps for rare thumbs is one called. Hold on. Can I try to, no, 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 no. I want to try to pronounce this. Can you not do that? All right. So (laughs) like don't step on my toes. Um, I've never heard of this mineral before, but I did watch a 60 minutes episode on the mountain pass mine. Um, and I don't think they mentioned the mineral anyway, <laughs> probably cause it's impossible to pronounce. I'm looking at it. Is it bast nasite, bastnasite, bastnasite? I've heard it pronounced bastnasite, which sounds bastnasite, bastnasite. I mean, there's various pronunciations, but, um, there's an unlaut in there, you know. It's a very interesting. <laughs> oh, word. there is. Okay. Uh, yeah, wow. I think. All right, all right. I, I mean, I typed <laughs> this into our script, so I didn't have the unlaut character on my keyboard. But yeah, I think there's an okay. unlaut somewhere in there. But this is a basically a rare thalmic carbonate. So it's has some cesium in there, but it's a rare thalmic carbonate. Has some OH groups and fluorine on the backside, but it's a carbonate. And this is the one that the Mountain Pass mine in California, which was going to shut down. I think it did shut down for a while production. Now it might be back up and running with the the um, Build Back Better initiative. I'm not really sure, uh, but it contains something like eight to twelve percent of the rock is rare thalmic oxide, like really oh hyper concentrated rare thalmic wow. oxides in here. Okay. 
a massive it's amount kinda, of rare. It's also elements. kind of a controversial mine. If I very controversial. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, like most yeah, mines. So. Um, and so I think, you know, Basnasite is a mineral. Basnasite is a mineral that is uh, really, if you're sort of researching neodymium and rareth elements, it's a mineral that people care about and are looking to mine because it's so highly concentrated. I just want to talk about one last thing, Chris, is that when it comes to mining neodymium or prospecting, you're not looking for just neodymium. Like neodymium never occurs by itself. It occurs with all the other rareth elements. Like they occur together as a cohort. And we're after neodymium. And so a lot of the economic calculations that go into deciding, hey, is this going to be a mine, depend not only on neodymium, but they also depend on the price of cerium, the price of samarium, like the market value of the other rare earth elements in that particular mineral. So it gets really, really complicated to forecast profits and losses and lifetime of a mine when it comes to this rare earth element stuff, because they all occur as a group together. So we're able to separate the cerium from the neodymium and all of this stuff using chemical processes? Yes, but it is much more difficult to separate neodymium, a rare earth element, from its neighboring rare earth element, samarium or cerium, because they're so similar chemically. They occur together in rocks because they're so similar chemically, whereas gold is relatively easy to separate from iron because they're very different elements. It would maybe be like, separating azurite from malachite from chrysocolla yes you know, exactly all copper oxides and all so copper on. stuff so, yep it, for sure for okay. sure so it okay. becomes quite okay. difficult to separate them wow interesting okay jesse doctor <laughs> hi <laughs> this brings us to the last part of this episode which are the scientific uses for neodymium for research and this is your rabbit hole. So yeah, okay. we don't so have the a lot of time, two, though. Hold on. Stop. For the next stop. two and a half hours. We got two and a half <laughs> oh hours, gosh. right, for this? <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a lot of time. We're already running a little long in the tooth. So we got to cut this down, right? Give us a rundown on this. And I'm just going to I'm gonna play host here. Okay, this sure. is my job. Okay. okay. All Go. right. So we've talked about uranium lead and various radiometric dating systems, right? Yeah, okay. That's uranium decaying to lead, okay? That's exactly right. And the ratio of uranium to lead gives us the age. We can use that, and that's a clock, right? Now, samarium is a rare earth element, SM. Samarium is a rare earth element. It occurs very close to neodymium in the periodic table, and samarium decays to neodymium. So 147, the isotope 147 samarium, decays to the isotope 143 neodymium and it decays is that two alphas that is one alpha one alpha decay 147 that's the atomic mass there yep. yep okay so one alpha decay has a half-life of about 106 billion years which is extremely long which means that for our purposes, our four and a half billion years of earth history this is a straight line like the exponential decay is just a straight line okay So why do we care about this? Well, first of all, some people use this as a clock. It works in specific instances to be a clock that that decay of 147 to 143 works like a clock. The bigger use is actually as an, what we call an isotope tracer. And so let's say, Chris, I know the age of a rock and it's two and a half billion years old. That rock, a magma crystallized two and a half billion years ago, but I want to know what melted to form that rock. So I have a granite. So 
interject yep. real quick. You know that it's two and a half billion years old because of some other, like uranium to lead decay method. You're not exactly. using samarium to neodymium. You're using That's something right. else. Okay. We're using go. something else. Yep. Either uranium yep. lead or maybe samarium neodymium, but we're using usually something else to determine the age. Two and a half billion years old. It's a granite. It's sitting there. I want to know what melted. What came before that granite? What melted to form that granite? Was it oceanic crust? Was it the mantle and it, the mantle fractionated to form this granite? Or was it some really, really old, f the first crust on earth that melted to form that granite? Okay. So that's kind of the question. I'm not looking at the rock itself. I'm looking at what came before it. What was its parent? And this is where samarium neodymium is really beneficial because samarium and neodymium have slightly different chemistries. And so when the mantle melts, this differentiation process, you melt the mantle. We have this partial melting. 15% of the mantle melts and we form oceanic crust with that. Both samarium and neodymium want to go into the melt stage, want to go into the magma, but samarium wants to just a little bit less. So more samarium stays behind than neodymium does. Fractionation. Exactly, fractionation. So the two elements are fractionated from one another a little bit too. Mm -hmm. So what does that do? Over a long period of time, the mantle has a- Can I give a crack at this? Yeah. So it enriches neodymium and- diminishes samarium relative to each other. Exactly. Right? Like, exactly. is that where you're going with it? Exactly okay. where I'm going with that. So if okay. we did this process 4 billion years ago, the mantle melts and we form oceanic crust and we form a depleted mantle, the mantle that has I lost get it. neodymium. Okay. You know where we're going with this, Chris? I get it. I get it. Okay. This is awesome. All right. So, so I want everybody to know, like you were, we did not really discuss this. Actually, <laughs> at we all. didn't at all. I we may have, have never no discussed idea. this. <laughs> no, we have not. Um, I freaking love doing this podcast with you. Like, I, <laughs> okay. I know I said that, but like, this is super fun for me because I'm just watching you work over there and I'm watching your little brain work over there. I love it. Um, <laughs> and I'm able to follow it. Like, I, okay. you know. Yeah. So what? So all let right. me, let me, I'm going to turn the tables because you've been asking yeah. me this all episode. So let's say that happened 4 billion years ago, that oceanic crust, what is it going to look like two and a half billion years ago? One and a half billion years later. Yeah. So you're looking at ratios of samarium to neodymium to determine where it came from. Exactly. That makes sense to me. Exactly. Um, so you're able to determine age using a different method, probably, probably not samarium to neodymium, but you are using the ratio of the two to determine the parent essentially exactly. Of, exactly. of where this stuff came from. And that is, Oh my God, that is freaking <laughs> cool. So I love that. Oh, let's play this forward a little bit here just to kind of complete the cycle here. If we think about that 4 billion years ago, we have oceanic crust formed primary crust, basaltic crust, and we have a depleted mantle. The mantle has slightly higher samarium to neodymium. There's more samarium relative to neodymium than there was before in that mantle. And in the crust, conversely, there's less samarium compared to neodymium. So I told you initially that samarium decays to neodymium, decays to 143 neodymium. So the mantle is going to, there's more samarium to neodymium in there. So 143 neodymium is going to grow more rapidly in the mantle than it is in the crust because the crust has less samarium compared to neodymium.
So these two things, even though they formed from the same mantle, when they formed 4 billion years ago, the crust, if you think of a chart where 143 neodymium is on the y-axis, the mantle is going to shoot up really quickly and the crust is going to kind of flatline and not increase very rapidly at all. So if we fast forward to 2.5 billion years ago and one of those rocks melted to form a granite, I can really easily tell the difference between a 4 billion year old mantle and a 4 billion year old piece of oceanic crust that could, either one of those could have melted to form a two and a half billion year old rock. It's kind of beautiful, right? Like this, this is what we call isotope tracing. It is. I'm, I'm tracking on you. Okay. I'm, I'm able to follow you. Is there a way for you to like, I'm only going to give you a minute. Is there a way to like distill this down just a little bit? I know Joyce is not following this. My mom is, she's, (laughs) she's napping right now. Yeah. I'm able to follow, but I got to really like, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat right now. Okay. Like this is exciting. And I think this is so freaking cool. But I think we lost like a lot of people. Okay, so let's um, let's bring it home to something you really enjoy. You like Skittles. I do. Am I right? My favorite. <laughs> you, when oh, you're I driving like that Skittles. bus on Summer Science, <laughs> I, I know not. you always got a big old jar of Skittles sitting right next to you to keep you awake, don't you? <laughs> I do. I love Skittles. Okay. Yeah, it's the best What's your candy. favorite color yep. of Skittle? Oh, I, I, it's like picking a favorite kid. I can't do that. Oh, come on. Give me something for the analogy here. Orange. Orange. Okay. What's the least favorite? (laughs) Purple. Purple. All right. So Chris, orange and purple, I'm going to have green and yellow. Okay. Let's say you got your jar of Skittles there and you really love orange, right? And you really hate purple. And so let's say you're sitting there, you're driving the bus and over time you're eating these candies, right? You're kind of eating the ones you like, you don't, you, you don't eat the exactly ones you do like. So going. let's yeah, say you're going to take half of those, half, half your Skittles, and you're going to say, all right, I don't want to eat the orange ones because I want to save them for later. And I'm going to put a bunch of the orange ones and okay, I, I didn't purely uh, separate them. So I'm going to put orange and green and purple and a little bit of yellow in one of the bins. And I'm going to keep the other bin, you know, uh, the one I'm eating out of actively here. And you're going to eat, progressively eat the orange ones. Mm-hmm. Now, leaving that's the kind purples. of leaving the purples behind, right? So that's kind of this sort of self-selection process. Now, if that's, that's the analogy, if you're actively consuming these things, but let's say all of the orange ones turn to purple over time at some fixed rate, like they decay away. Now your jar that you set somewhere where you artificially enrich that in orange ones and you kept the, the your jar that you're actively eating out of has less orange ones in it. The orange ones are decaying to the purple ones, but it's decaying a lot less. You're producing less purple ones in your jar than the one you saved and tucked underneath your seat. There's a lot more purple being produced in that one because you put your a bunch of orange ones in that jar and tucked it under your seat. Does that make sense? So by eating the orange ones at a faster rate, I am enriching the purple ones left behind. And that's, that's right. what's happening in the mantle. Correct. That's right. That's right. Yep. Okay. Yes. And so now, by then, the way, did then, I say that correctly? Like that's in the, it's in the mantle, right? That it's enriched. Yes. Did I it's say enriched that in the mantle. Okay. Yes. That's right. Yes. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ratio, right. the ratio okay. is enriched in the mantle. And Chris, let Jesse, me just, so Je- uh, hold on. Let me, hold, not, okay. ah, nope, nope. I got to give you credit, Jesse. I, ah, I've said this too many times this episode, but this has really been maybe one of the most like enlightening and fun episodes for me to do seriously. And I mean that like, this is really cool since maybe the nuclear reactors episode, which (laughs) 
don't remember yeah. that or didn't listen to it, go back to that because that's one of the coolest factoids that, that exist in, in geology. But Jesse, your analogy is spot on. And your ability now to draw analogies, Jesse, is growing my young sage. Well, I've learned Look from the best over the last couple of years here. <laughs> so Chris, let me just tag one thing on here. And maybe this, you give, will you give me 30 seconds here? Uh, yeah, but okay, we're getting long. So we're we getting go. long. 30 seconds. Okay. I'm just going to add in to based on that nuclear reactor thing is that neodymium, this samarium neodymium system, 147 samarium decays to 143 neodymium, half life of 100 billion years. It's just like uranium lead in that there is another system. There's a samarium to neodymium system that is the short lived one. That's just like the short-lived uranium lead. There's two isotopes of uranium that decay to two isotopes of lead. There were two isotopes of samarium that decay to two isotopes of neodymium. There was an isotope 146 samarium that decayed to 142 neodymium, and it had a half-life of 100 million years. So within the first 500 million years of Earth history, by 4 billion years ago, 146 samarium was dead. It was extinct. But what it does is we can go to rocks and we can look at 142 neodymium and we can tell if that rock's source, the parent to that rock, was formed in the Hadean in the first 500 million years of Earth history. How cool is that? We can look at like a modern rock and say, hey, did the source to this rock form when Earth was a baby? That to me is just mind-blowingly cool. All right. Freaking cool. All right. But some people, most of the people I think listening are lost on why. Why? Yep. Good question. So, Chris, we've been doing this plate tectonics question series, and we're about three in. We might have two or three to go. I can't remember. But we are about to cover, if we haven't yet, when plate tectonics began on Earth. And we actually have no idea when. Well, we have some idea, but there's very little agreement on when plate tectonics started on Earth. And Part of that question is when did continents grow on earth? We don't really fundamentally understand when continents grew on earth. And this system, this clock that we've just described, this tracer isotope system is great at tracing when continents grew on earth, or at least it's a step in the right direction. So that's kind of why Why we we sort of are interested here. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's very quickly summarize here. We talked about neodymium. Neodymium is really important for society. Basically, we make strong magnets with neodymium, and that's really instrumental for the green economy and all of the electric motors that we have in our society. The geology of neodymium, it's enriched every time the planet melts. And then we have some of these really weird minerals, rare ethelmate phosphates and and rare ethelmate carbonates that contain loads of rare ethelmates that are actually the mineable resources. Uh, And then we ended with a not too short summary of a graduate level crash course on the isotope geochemistry of neodymium and why it's useful for science. So that's, uh, that's kind of a summary. So Jesse, this was a lot of fun for me. This last hour of you and I talking like I, um, I don't know. I feel invigorated. I learned a ton. I kept up for the most part, you know, you are definitely the doctor in the house here, and I love that about this. We bring such different things to this podcast, and you brought it today. You wrote this script, and I read it. All I did was read it, and I had no really, you know, we just kind of 
freeballed this thing. We didn't rehearse what we were going to say at all, which we hardly ever do anyway. But this was mentally very stimulating for me and just like fun. Like this reminds me of why I want to do this with you. Oh, I mean, it was, I, just, it was great. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. That it was super fun. I mean, the, you know, like I said, this is the last eight years of my life. <laughs> I've been studying this a lot in detail. So, um, near and dear to my heart. I mean, it's, I'm glad it's not boring. <laughs> well, anyway, I, yeah. yeah, no, it's not boring at all. I, I hope that we didn't lose a lot of people along the way. Um, hey, I think you did a good job keeping me out of the weeds and keeping me structured. I tried my best, but sometimes totally I get pulled into the weeds, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's not easy for me to like yeah. stay out of that. Cause I get sucked in by things oh, that you man. say. And then I'm like, my mind goes, you know what I'm, yeah, I, yeah, totally. I, I don't know how to stop that. So, but I don't so want to stop it. Let's put it out there because um, if you have questions about Nidunium, the geology of Nidunium, yeah, send us yeah, an email, good, please good send us an email planetgeocast at gmail.com we love hearing those questions and we promise we will get to them eventually even if we don't right away so shoot us an email reach out on social media we're at planet geocast on all the social medias you can visit our website planetgeocast.com go to camp geo if you want the basics this is very in the weeds this discussion here if you want to go back to basics a little bit go to camp geo college level physical geology class intro level class right there for you um, the link is in the show notes it's at the top of the show notes and please share our podcast. It really helps us out and we enjoy that. So please share. Absolutely. Cheers. Leave us a rating and review and uh, go to our website. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.